could could we get tell Nat he's wrong dot gc8 podcast <laughs> could we just register that Okay, welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric, and today with me is... Johanna. And Nat. And we are still in the midst of our Aliens Predator Marathon here. Um, But before we get to that, what's been going on with you guys? Tracy and I got hooked on and then ran out of Forged in Fire, a series of game shows, like reality show game shows, in which... Four people come on, this is all on Netflix now, and make swords. And this show is basically designed to convince you that you can make a sword with just a few hundred dollars of equipment. (laughs) I am currently fighting this disease wherein I think I can do something I've seen somebody do on television. I know it. I can feel it in my bones. You and I have a friend named Andy who took a forging class in college where everybody made like little metal tchotchkes or whatever and he made a freaking battle axe do you remember that (laughs) you know and here's the funny part like a i know which andy you're talking about without a second you know without any hesitation b i don't believe i saw the battle axe but i certainly can imagine it right like boom it's just there I just finished season three of Twin Peaks and I watched Fire Walk with me in between. So now I've completed the Twin Peaks storyline and I'm not going to ruin it for anybody, but season three was a real slog because Dale Cooper is not really Cooper for three quarters of the series. And it, it was exhausting getting to that point, but oh my gosh, was it so satisfying when we get to the finale. You, too, now know the disappointment the rest of us felt in the 90s when Twin Peaks (laughs) ended and Fire Walk With Me was all we got. (laughs) Yeah, well, season three, it paid out at the end, but it was it was a lot of work. And David Lynch, some of his stuff that he indulges in, I can't tell if it's self-conscious or not or like what he's trying to do with it, but. There's a female FBI agent in season three, Tammy, who is a total knockout bombshell and has no personality. And I just like I the entire season, I was like, I don't I can't tell what he's doing here. You know, it's not exactly self-conscious and critical of TV shows with hot FBI agents. It's sort of more of a maybe she was his latest squeeze and that's how she got a part in the show. I, I have no idea, but I it was very you know, baffling. Highly recommend revisiting Twin Peaks if anybody hasn't seen it yet. Let's get into our Aliens expanded universe. We're talking about things today that did not appear in the films, but maybe should have. I know we're going to get to some of the later sequels, but since we're touching on the expanded universe of Aliens, I wanted to explore the new radio drama adapted from William Gibson's 1987 script of a possible Alien 3 sequel that was never made. We'll get to David Fincher's Alien 3 in a later episode, but this radio drama that Audible has released just in the last year presents an alternate storyline for where things could have gone. I have to say, as a radio drama, it is excellent. The Foley effects are amazing. 
I was on a bike ride listening to it and cooking while I was listening to it and could picture everything in my mind based on just, you know, in-depth knowledge of the characters from Aliens who then show up in this sequel and also of the creature itself. So even though the visual effects in the films are, of course, one of the most stunning features of these films, because that work is so striking inside my imagination, actually, as a radio drama, this worked beautifully. The story picks up immediately after Aliens ends. And actually, the beginning of the story kind of revisits some of the ending events on the platform with the alien queen squaring off against Ripley. It revisits those events from Bishop's point of view. You sort of get a slightly different window into what's going on, but more importantly, it sets up this idea that maybe Bishop has some alien material left over on his body because of when the alien queen stabbed him with her tail and ripped him apart and just eases you into this sense of not being quite sure if the ship is entirely clean when everyone goes into hypersleep. So it, it sets you up with that idea, which of course later sequels have to tease out as well, this possibility that the aliens have not all been destroyed and that someone on the ship may have been infected. What this story does is introduces other human characters and explores a greater conflict in which the Weyland-Yutani Corporation is operating. So in Alien and Aliens, there's this sense of wanting to use the alien specimen to create weapons of the future. And this idea that the alien is going to be very valuable. So you have this triangle of science, military, and business all together. This radio drama definitely explores this, but introduces a villain in the human world, so to speak, and turns the story from, we had been discussing earlier that Aliens and Predator, its spinoff, both exist in sort of a Vietnam War era. This radio drama makes it a Cold War story. So, the Sulaco drifting in space with Ripley, Newt, Bishop, and Hicks all in hypersleep is discovered by, it's called the U Union of Progressive Peoples, which is a very, very thinly veiled <laughs> reference to the Soviet Union. We'll just call them the Soviets just for the sake of keeping the parallel straight, but the Soviets discover the Sulaco, they discover Bishop, and they take Bishop's top half with them and go conduct their experiments. The Sulaco is then later discovered by a Whalen yutani space station. So you have these two separate factions that are both doing the same scientific experiments related to the biological alien material found on Bishop. Wait a minute, wait a minute, I gotta break in here. So you're telling me the capitalists and the communists each take part of the Nazis scientists with them <laughs> after the cold after the big war is that what we're saying here because that's what it sounds like to me that's exactly what we're saying and, and i looked while you were while you were talking about this i looked and this was written in 1987 like this is the end of the cold war but this is still right in the cold war that he wrote this yeah it was the, supposed to be the screenplay for alien 3 yeah yeah and i think what's important about it is in in alien and aliens the critique of capitalism 
is done, I, I'm not going to say in a vacuum, but that capitalism itself, because it's not ever explained why they want the material or what it's worth or in what context they would use it, it's just kind of this like general threat of capitalism prompting humanity to go where they shouldn't go and exploit resources that they shouldn't and put people's lives at risk for the sake of making a buck. In this story version, there is a definite capitalist versus communist, both in an arms race, an actual arms race that is discussed. And this idea that trying to figure out how to harness the alien technology is part of a much larger human conflict. So that's that's the first interesting piece about this radio drama. The second piece of it that's interesting is in Alien and Aliens, we have Ripley as a major character. In this storyline, Ripley remains asleep through the entire story. So it offers kind of an interesting opportunity to hear more from other characters, their varying degrees of distrust about this alien species. Normally we have Ripley in there saying, this thing is terrible, we have to destroy it, don't go looking for more, and that she is sort of this naysayer. And in this storyline, Hicks is being debriefed and sort of processed, and so is Newt. And Bishop, for at least the first half of the story, his brain is with the Russians, and his bottom half is with the Whalen group, who is the protagonist through most of the story. Most of the story fixates on the Whalen utani characters. So without Ripley there, we're sort of left with these characters who are all on their own trying to figure out how they feel about this alien technology and the risks it poses. I guess the result is that you have a little bit more of a slower buildup towards this conclusion that maybe experimenting with this alien biological material isn't such a good idea. But in the meantime, they take the idea of the alien's biology into a really interesting direction by basically trying to grow an alien embryo in a test tube. And what they discover is that the alien is even more adaptable than we thought before. We had this idea of the way the aliens reproduce is that they have eggs, the eggs hatch face huggers, the face huggers implant an embryo in your throat, and that later turns into a baby alien that bursts out of your chest. This explores the idea that the alien can actually adapt its reproductive mechanism based on the possible hosts and the environment it's in. We'll get to that more in a later sequel, but that idea of the alien being able to reproduce in different ways and in this new reproductive mode, uh, sort of, it's again, we're talking about this during a pandemic, so some stuff resonates differently than usual, but the alien becomes aerosolized and people who inhale this aerosolized bacteria turn into aliens spontaneously and you end up with alien-human hybrids. This is not going into any details about like who gets infected when, I'm not spoiling anything for you other than some interesting directions that this story goes in that we see later. But I wanna to return to the arms race. They mention this in the context of an idea that the alien has this reproductive adaptability because it was designed to be a weapon that was made as part of an arms race by other species, which again, we will revisit in maybe not the sequels, but in the prequels. Awesome. 
The only question I had, why the hell did they opt for the script they took for Aliens 3, right? Like, why the hell? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, I, I think this would have been a better movie. I think so, too. The only thing is, cinematically, it would have felt very similar to some of the other material. Sort of the way the story unfolds is they're on a space station. There's a cool biodome in the space station, which is fun. But otherwise, it's still a lot of aliens and alien hybrids sneaking around the ship. So I think there was some concern that it was going to be too redundant visually with aliens, which is why it works great as a radio drama. But also the conclusion to the story and... Again, try not to give anything away, but... But, you know, William Gibson wrote it, so... <laughs> yeah. You can read the screenplay online. It's available anywhere. So if you if you don't have an Audible account or you're not sure radio drama is for you, you can read the script and we'll probably pick up on some of these things just as well. But the conclusion of the story is the Soviets have been dealing with the same outbreak and the same failed experiments that the Weyland-Yutani group does. And they actually come together in the end. And there is a very strong sense of humans reconciling their differences in the face of a greater threat. What it made me realize is that one of the unique things about Star Trek, just to go in a totally different direction, Star Trek is one of the few sci-fi where money is not part of the story. It's really about recognizing what the threats are and that the threats are usually someone has a vital resource that someone else needs and you have to negotiate how that gets shared. But there's no sense of, well, I'm going to get as much resources for myself as possible. So it was kind of an interesting place for this Alien 3 radio drama to end, kind of gesturing towards a Star Trek-like utopia where people are no longer concerned about money and no longer concerned about an arms race, but are actually just trying to unite together against greater threats. William Gibson's Alien 3, which is on Audible as an audiobook, is also available as a Dark Horse graphic novel, which is a great introduction to my piece of the larger Aliens canon. Aliens Book One. Aliens Book One was a collection of the first Aliens comics that Dark Horse ever released. If you remember, um, when we talked about Alien, I said that I read Alien, the Illustrated Story, which Heavy Metal Comics put out an adaptation of the original Alien film. And I wasn't overly keen on it because it used watercolors and it didn't really seem to match. It, it was okay, but it surprised me that it was the first graphic novel to hit the New York Times bestseller list because it was just okay. Aliens Book One is amazing. I have read it over and over. I pick it up once a decade, probably read the whole thing. It's 160 pages, so it isn't small. But before I get into it, I need to explain what Aliens Book One I'm talking about, because there are a number of things that go by the title Aliens Book One. There are literally dozens of alien comics, right? Like, yeah, a <laughs> yeah. lot of them. I'm dead curious on what you've got, because I have not seen it. Okay, so here's what happened. Dark Horse gets the license to the Aliens franchise in the late 80s, and it puts out a miniseries just called Aliens, one through six, six issues. That's what this is. 
It was written by Mark Verheiden, who was pretty much unknown at the time. Now he's a major player in sci-fi. He is the one that was the creator and showrunner of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. It is also illustrated by a comic artist who doesn't get enough accolades, in my opinion. I really hadn't heard much of him before this and hadn't heard much from him since. Maybe comic geeks know a lot more about him than I do, but Mark A. Nelson. And the art is fantastic. I was just kind of iffy on the art in Alien, the illustrated story, but Aliens, very, very cool, very, very uh, graphic. All the tech, everything looks spot on. Now, the problem is they released these after Aliens, but before Alien 3 came out. And they really tried not to interfere with the Alien franchise. So Ripley doesn't appear in it at all. Clearly, their take on things was as long as we stay away from Ripley, we got nothing to worry about. So Ripley's mentioned in it only twice. What they did focus on was instead Hicks and Newt. The problem is that when Alien 3 came out, everything changed. Without major spoilers, Hicks and Newt don't make it back to Earth. (laughs) In this one, it starts with Hicks and Newt on Earth. It starts 10 years later. So they special editioned the fuck out of this series. They changed Hicks to Wilkes. They changed Newt to Billy. Then there was another Aliens miniseries that came out after this, also called Aliens, which was four issues long, which was a different story. In that, they were already known as Wilkes and Billy. And so in Dark Horse Comics from that point on, they were known as Wilkes and Billy and things get very confusing because off and on, this has been in and out of print, Alien Book One. It's also sometimes known as Alien's Outbreak. (laughs) They also colorized it. The original was in black and white, and they made some other changes. To make things even more confusing, this original version has come back in print a couple of times, most recently being 2016. It was finally available in its original form again. All of that is a really long way of saying that if you look for Aliens Book One, my recommendation is look for it in black and white. If the artwork is in black and white, you are probably getting the original version with Hicks and Newt. Okay, that out of the way, let's get into the story. The story takes place 10 years after the events in Aliens. Hicks is still in the Marines. He is a problem for the Marines, but they don't want to let him go because he's the only one that knows stuff about the aliens. So he's constantly like in the stockade and he suffers post-traumatic stress disorder and has a lot of nightmares and things like that. And he hates the aliens. That's pretty much all you need to know about Hicks. He hates the aliens. He's scarred and disfigured from alien acid. He wants nothing more than to destroy aliens. Newt is a teenager, and she is in a mental institution. And they are drugging her up. She also suffers from nightmares. Her experiences in the mental institution is like a lab rat. It is like um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. There are three major plot lines going on here. One with the military, one with the Whalen yutani Corporation, which they again, avoid in this by calling them Bionational. 
And the third is a weird religious sect. I'll get to them in a second. The military wants to use the aliens as a bioweapon. Big surprise. So they've discovered the alien homeworld. And they want to send a detachment of space marines to the alien homeworld to bring back specimens. They are going to make Hicks lead this mission. Hicks agrees to it. They think they're using Hicks to do this mission for them. They think he's their pawn. Hicks considers them his pawn. His plan is to go to the alien homeworld, nuke them, destroy every alien, wipe them out of existence. That is Hicks's private mission that he's going to use these space marines for. So he's got he's training them, he's like getting all the best weapons, all that stuff. He's planning to go obliterate them. Then he finds out Newt, who he saved, is in this institution. And he visits her, discovers what they're doing to her. They're drugging her up and that they're planning to lobotomize her. And she begs him to save her, which he does. The night before the mission, figuring they can't court-martial him or anything, they need him, he breaks into the mental institution, breaks her out. And it's on the 40th floor of a skyscraper. He sets up plastique explosives and blows out one wall to escape. And they jump out into a drone that has a catch net. And the reason I bring up this detail is they mention there are a couple of things that this um, this comic mentions. Keep in mind, these were written in the late 80s, 88 through 90, 89, I think. And in 90, it came out in a collected form. They talk about the World Trade Center getting, quote unquote, smoked. And these catch drones were developed to, to, to save the jumpers. OK, this is more than a decade before the fall of the Trade Center. And the way they talk about it, they don't say it's terrorism, but they hint that it is. And in fact, in this book, the government now is allowed to use torture in the case of terrorism doesn't explain why. Also, it talks about the quote-unquote oil wars. Keep in mind, this came out before even the first Gulf War. The amount of things that this book somehow knew is unbelievable. All right, that's the setup. I'll only say that they get to the alien homeworld, and the aliens may not be the dominant species on the planet. So, big wrinkle in their plan. Bionational has their own plan. They want to steal the army's specimens to be their specimens. So they send a chase ship with mercenaries to overtake Hicks's ship, kill them all, and steal the aliens for themselves. So there's another wrinkle in the plan. So those two are on a collision course with each other. While all that's going on off in space, back on Earth, footage of this has gotten out and there's this weirdo religious cult that worships the aliens and they want aliens implanted in them. So those are your three plot lines and they all converge in an amazing way in Aliens Book One. After the movie Aliens, the James Cameron Aliens film, that's still my favorite. But of all the alien stuff that's ever come out, this is my second favorite. It is well worth your time. Like I said, at 160 pages, it'll provide lots and lots of entertainment. 
Dark Horse is one of the few cases where a licensee of a franchise has actually done more with the franchise and more better stuff with the franchise than the franchise owners and has really driven this series. It drove the audiobook that Johanna speaks about was largely because Dark Horse pushed for it. Dark Horse got Steve Perry to do novelizations of this comic and the comic series after it. And Steve Perry, science fiction writer himself, said that if Aliens 3 had been Aliens Book 1 instead, it would have been a thousand times better movie. They also were hugely influential on the video game series, which we will be talking about here in a minute. The sad thing is they've lost the license. The licensor was 20th Century Fox or Fox. A lot of their assets were acquired by Disney. So now the new licensee is Marvel Comics. But there is some hope. As a quick digression, I'm going to say that one of my favorite Marvel comic story arcs was in the X-Men. The X-Men, they are off in space and they encounter an alien species called the Brood. The Brood are these insectoid xenomorph type creatures. They are total dead-on ripoffs of the aliens. Basically, someone wanted to put aliens and the X-Men together, like an unofficial crossover. The mutants get aliens implanted in them, and any that hatch are going to have mutant power, but Wolverine, of course, he has healing power, so like his body rejects the alien and kills it, so then he's the only one that, that kills the implanted alien. He's decided he's got to kill all the other X-Men, and it is a great story. The only other Marvel Comics group that has ever encountered the Brood is the Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'm holding out hope that if the Aliens franchise comes under the umbrella of Marvel, we might get to see the Brood slash Aliens slash Xenomorphs versus Guardians of the Galaxy and the X-Men. That would be an amazing crossover just based on the Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum comics of the X-Men versus the Brood, which are really the aliens. Okay, that's all I want to say. Weird little aside. Go for it, Johanna. So just listening to you talk about that plot line made me think about an aspect of the alien cinematic universe that has always surprised me, which is this sense of we don't know if they're infected or not, and we're just going to kill them. The sense of suspicion against fellow humans that shows up in a lot of other sci-fi, particularly Battlestar, but you know what you were saying about like Wolverine's going to go off and kill all the other X-Men. I mean, probably without, not without some hesitation or some sadness, but, you know, we don't see that show up in a lot of the series of like this, I think this person is infected and I'm going to murder them without a trial, you know, like, and it's sort of surprising given how high the stakes are. And I wonder if you're playing the video game version of this, whether you get to make those kinds of judgments or not. So I'll turn it over to Nat to see if, if the video game world has a different take on it. Well, and I've been Googling just frantically this whole time because of the like interconnected relationship of all of this. Like I've got 30 tabs open just about the stuff we've been talking about. And the first thing that strikes me is you got Alien comes out in 79. Then you've got God. You know what? I don't want to call it a parlor drama. <laughs> But consider for a moment the possibility that The Thing, 1982, is a parlor drama. <laughs> that then that aspect of who is infected 
gets wrapped up into uh, when when was that, Eric? The AIDS era, I believe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're talking the uh, the late 80s, uh, the 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Um, I Sorry, I had to throw that in there. No, no. It, it's interesting to me how that like you can't patent a method of suspense. One person does it and it gets wrapped up into the other things. But sorry, I digress because I want to talk about the history of the Aliens video games. There have been several decades at this point of Aliens video games. And in fact, when I looked, the first one came out on the Atari 2600. Whoa! <laughs> I don't remember playing this. I don't know that this ever made it out before the collapse of the, the first wave of video games. This was released in 1982, and it looks, for all intents and purposes, like Pac-Man. Uh, it it's horrific. The first game I remember playing was on the Commodore 64, maybe two years, three years after this in the mid 80s. And it was very much this just post text adventure video game, post Zork or whatnot. You have a certain menu of commands. Again, not very suspenseful gameplay unless you have the imagination of a child in the 80s and a Commodore 64, which was a rare combination. Like, not everybody had. Commodore 64s were still pretty obscure. Most people did not have computers. It was a weird thing to have. But the game I want to talk about the most, which was also terrible, because every game in this series was terrible. The game I want to touch on the most, and we'll make it to another one here in a minute, 1999 Alien vs. Predator video game. This was very much before internet play was... Um, a given like it was a possibility some games came out with it some games if they had it it was mostly a, a paper feature that didn't really work in practice but the late 90s was also the era of picking up your computer picking up your 70 pound crt your keyboard mouse hauling it over to a friend's house running ethernet cable and having a land party for the weekend and that we did before broadband <laughs> it was you know what broadband existed like it was it was possible that you had broadband right and in fact i think this was during the first wave of dsl installs wait a minute let me ask you a question what year did doom come out doom god i want to say 92 now is it just me or does anyone else get aliens vibes off of doom as well Doom was 93. Sorry, I was wrong. I was off by a year. It was the early 90s. Okay. Yeah, and I get that. And again, you've got to remember, by the time Doom comes out, Aliens had been out for 15 years, right? Like, Or Alien had been out for 15 years. Aliens was seven years. It had entered mainstream nerd consciousness. Everybody just knew. We had those tropes built into our head. It was a really easy to story to tell. And if you look at the progenitor to Doom, the ancestor of Doom castle wolfenstein we start off killing nazis then we move on to killing aliens video games weren't ready to tell complex stories yet they took the tropes you'd already come to you already knew you'd already seen indiana jones so castle wolfenstein just easy to execute likewise you had already seen alien or excuse me aliens so doom was very easy to like throw you into and let you go with its low res graphics so 1999, Alien vs. Predator. 99% of this was rote. It was just a packaged industry first-person shooter. I don't think they wrote their own engine for it. I don't think they allowed the artists to really innovate 
or add anything to the franchise. I'm sure the franchise was still under heavy control at this point, so they didn't want the video game guys to add anything to canon that they didn't have to, and they weren't really trying to. The one thing they did right on this was to control lighting. It was possibly the first first-person shooter I had ever seen where you couldn't see most of the map. So you spent a lot of time using light resources. Also, I should note, you could play this game as either the Marines, the Predator, or the Alien. The Predator or the Alien, they saw fine in the dark. We didn't care about them, right? They weren't the important part. The humans could obviously could not see in the dark. You spent a lot of time throwing flares into dark corners, which is possibly one of the things I have always wanted to, ever since The Thing with John Carpenter, again, 1982, I have wanted to illuminate an ice cave with a road flare. Nothing would tickle me more in life than to like light up the, the guy walking through the underground cavern with flare. Beautiful. But this game spent a lot of time doing that. It, it spent a lot of time not giving you the information you would normally need for a shooter, which is, what do I see? And it scared the bejesus out of it. Again, I am so hesitant to play this again now, as it was primitive. It took no chances with any other part of gameplay. It was boring. It was terrible. Except for the part where you were scared shitless. You would hear a noise. Everybody had their volume on the headphones cranked up past the point of comfort just so they might catch that tiny little, like, clue of an alien coming out of a, like, an air duct or, you know, crawling down the ceiling towards us. Which leads me to what could have been the best game in the series, Alien Isolation. Alien Isolation came out on the PC in 2014. Alien Isolation was plagued by delays. I remember watching it. I, I was very invested in this time because this came, I guess, hand in hand with the latest generation of VR. Virtual reality was in beta. It was a, if anybody knows the history, it was a Kickstarter. It was a very home-built product. And they had just released the sequel to this kind of rough first draft, the Oculus Rift Beta 2. It was the second generation of Rift. They were testing ideas. They were playing with it. Alien Isolation was being developed alongside of this. And if anybody can imagine anything more scary in the world than an alien video game, like game players literally crawling under their desks. <laughs> like it was, it was wonderful. And then... I guess the publisher got a hold of the developers and threw the brakes on it. They're like, no, no, we're not writing the best game ever for VR. You guys got to sell this to 50 million houses that aren't going to have VR. You, you got you to gotta bring this back into the real world. It ended up being kind of minimized. Like it brought back to a puzzle shooter with horror elements, if that makes sense. It was almost the greatest game that ever could have been made in the Alien universe, Johanna had mentioned the sound effects in the William Gibson's Alien 3 audio drama. Much of the sound effects that were used in that were taken from Alien Isolation. You could have fooled me. I thought they were coming straight out of the film. Nicely done. They were so close to being this once a decade amazing property. And then it got, I, I guess, the accounting department got a hold of it and realized how few people they were selling or developing this game for. And it got changed. Like they, they, they really did have a great product at the beginning that every single person that got to try it freaked out. It was the first time I was watching people panic in virtual reality. And it was amazing. 
I wish I had better things to say about the rest of the franchise or even these games, right? The beta for this was a solo player trying to make it off the Nostromo or a ship like the Nostromo, I guess they never really say, without getting killed by the alien. Early virtual reality was not so much concerned with gameplay as presence. They were chasing this feeling of being in a place, less than the, oh, you have to find the box and put it in the box receptacle to open the door. Like, that didn't (laughs) matter to them nearly as much as the idea that, no, you're in the Nostromo. I feel that's still true of VR to this day. Yeah. Is more concerned with trying to create a virtual reality. They're more hung up on that than the gameplay aspect. Some of the early VR demos that I appreciated the most weren't called games. They were called scenes. It was just simply, you're, you're in the Millennium Falcon. This guy spent eight months developing a Millennium Falcon that you can just simply inhabit. There was no challenge. There was no, it wasn't even a sandbox game. It wasn't open-ended. You were just there. And it had a certain class to it that major developers now don't care about. They want to sell you 15 Call of Duties. And for all the things I could say that are good about Call of Duty, every Call of Duty is another Call of Duty. There hasn't been anything amazing about them in a decade. They just keep kind of rewriting the same stuff. And yeah, I am a little sad this fell prey to that. I don't know how a developer team of like five guys with a couple artists and a very minimal budget gets a hold of the Alien franchise, but you know, if they could, it would have been the best thing ever. But yeah, it ended up being over-curated into a mass market product that I don't think had the same impact. And then, that's not even the last Alien game. They've been making Alien games the whole time since then. Have you heard of any? I haven't. No, nobody cares. None of them has been great. None of them has been In my opinion, and I love video games, none of them's worthy of the franchise. Final thumbs up, thumbs down, or whatever. Johanna, Alien 3, the Audible audiobook. Absolutely. You have to check it out. Totally worth activating your Audible free trial for. I I didn't mention this before, but it's great seeing Lance Henriksen and Michael Bean stretch their radio drama skills. They're not the only compelling performers, but they are particularly highlights. And it makes you feel like you're there. So highly recommend the Audible Alien 3 radio drama. I cannot highly enough recommend Aliens Book 1 the Mark Verheiden and Mark A. Nelson six-issue comic series from Dark Horse that ran in the late 80s that is collected as Aliens Book One, sometimes known as Aliens Outbreak. In particular, it really develops the characters of Hicks and Newt. Hicks, who is consumed with hatred. Newt, who is trying to become a well-adjusted adult. Their character arcs are very impressive, and the story is full of twists. Every time you think you know what's going to happen, something new happens to to just change things. All in 160 pages, beautiful black and white comics. Definite thumbs up. It'll be sad to see Dark Horse lose the license because they've really been driving this franchise. We wouldn't have an Aliens vs. Predator if it weren't for Dark Horse. Those ideas were first explored in the Dark Horse comics. Many of the best things that came in the Aliens and the Predator series happened thanks to the Dark Horse comics. And the Dark Horse comics, frankly, are better than most of the Aliens and Predator movies. 
and AVP. This is just the first book. In future episodes, I might dive in and talk about Aliens Book 2 and Aliens Book 3. But for now, I'm going to stick to Aliens Book 1 and say definitely check it out. Nat, Aliens Isolation and or any other video game. Just stay away from them. You guys, I cannot wait to reread the comics. I cannot wait to hear the audio drama. The video games, they're trash. I'm not saying video games are trash. I have some amazing video games that we will get into at some point. These are not them. The Aliens franchise has been woefully mistreated by video games. And if I am wrong, please, God, somebody tell me I'm missing something great that I have never heard of. Email us. Tell me. I will mention you on air, and I will tell about the excitement I had playing the best Aliens video game ever. I don't think it's happening. That email, in case anyone wants to write in and tell Nat he's wrong, is gc8podcast at gmail.com. That's the letter G, the letter C, the number 8 podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, so this is Eric. And Johanna. And Nat. Signing off.